Um, my name is Nick. I'm the pastor here. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I'm Tolu, as you guys know, if you don't know me. Um, I've been here since, I think, October 2013. So almost four years, I think, that I've been here. And um, I'm just happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And let's get into it. Um, if you don't have your Bibles, I don't know if you're distributing Bibles. If you don't have any Bible, you could get one from the ushers. Thank you for that. Thank you, guys. Um, if you do have your Bibles, please let's open up to Genesis 22. I'm going to be reading from verse 1 to 12. So Genesis 22 from verse 1 to 12. And Nick told me I have just about 30 minutes. But then we started early, so I have like an hour and a half. So <laughs> with Genesis 22, verse 1 to 12. Let me read. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Let's say a quick prayer. Uh, Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to always come to you, to come to the waters of life, to drink of you, to eat of you, God. Thank you so much that you would even give us an audience to learn from you. Father, my prayer today is that you will truly open our hearts to hear from you, that you will speak, not my words, but your words, God, and you will speak the right words to the hearts of your people. I am praying that we will truly come to you to buy gold that is refined from fire so that we might be truly wealthy, that we will take on your robes of righteousness to cover our shame and our nakedness, and we will buy salve from you to anoint our eyes so that we may see clearly i'm praying that as you knock on the door of our hearts today god 
that we will open the door of our hearts to you and you will come and dine with us. So Lord, at the end of the day, I am praying that we will leave here with renewed hope, that we will come to see the depth of your love for us and we will come to be strengthened by that and that forevermore we will continue to glorify you and enjoy you. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we could look at this passage, right, and sort of look at this as almost the climax of the interaction between Abraham and God. So throughout Abraham's life, there's about six or seven times that God interacted directly with him, right? And this passage is sort of like the climax. And so maybe for you, the question that jumps out at me is, what makes a man so willing to sacrifice his son, right? What makes a man so pliable to to basically hear God speak one day and early the next morning he wakes up and he basically makes a beeline for where God would have him go, right? To me, that doesn't make sense. Like, why would I do that, right? It just doesn't make sense, right? And that's part of what I want to explore today. Um, for us, right, the question we might ask is, at least for me, like, Tolu, are you so willing to give up your pedigree, your education, your job, all of that, and go be a nursery school teacher in some obscure place, right? Am I so willing to give up my dreams, my goals, ambition, the things I've planned towards? Sorry. <laughs> um, right? Am I willing to let God take care of my public relations, my PR department, when people slander me or when people say the wrong things, right? Am I willing to just lay that down and let it go? Right? And, and so another thing I would look at for me is because I think at least for me, when I look at my identity, and this is not a pro- I'm not proud of this, right? But when I look at my identity, I usually see that it's tied to either what people say about me, right? What I have amassed, or what I have, or what I am doing, or what makes me significant. And those are all the wrong ideas, right? One's identity should not be based on that. But am I willing to let that go, right? So as we walk through this and we look at Abraham giving up Isaac, the question I want to ask is, am I willing to become the type of person that what comes out of me naturally is the good fruit of the spirit? Or how do I become that person? How do I become this person that I'm so pliable and so abandoned into the hands of God? Right. So for Abraham, at some level, maybe subconsciously, he, he must have understood that the, the seeming foolishness of God, right? is really an area of unexplored wisdom, right? What seems foolish, right? That we think that God is doing something foolish. For example, the cross, right? Look at the cross, gruesome death. I mean, look at when it was being implemented. Nobody would think would be wearing it around our necks today. And it would be something so precious to us, right? So that seeming foolishness of God is really unexplored wisdom. And so that's what I want to explore today. So let's look a little bit at Abraham's life and see what we can get from that, right? Of why he would become so pliable that he can give up his son. So let me read Genesis 22 again, just verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. After these things, right? The tendency is to skip over that verse, right? Real straightforward. But 
for God to even speak to Abraham and for Abraham to just respond, there had to have been this deep friendship, this deep intimacy, right? And so when we look at our lives, how do we form friendships, right? It's usually over a period of time. We've been through some highs and some lows with the person, right? We've come to understand their character, come to build trust in their character. So what I want to explore is that phrase after these things. And so go back in time, look at Abraham's life, look at some ups and downs quickly and see what we might learn there, right? And what I want you to be looking at is to just be looking at how God is building intimacy with Abraham throughout his life, right? How the seemingly mundane things, the normal events of his life, God is using that and skillfully weaving that to build faith in Abraham. Right, so I keep hearing this thing, sorry. <laughs> um, so let, let's go back to Genesis 12, right? Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, go, leave your family, leave your comfort, and just go out west. Go to a land, I will show you. Where's the land? Just go. I'm going to leave my family? Sure, just leave everybody and go. Is there a map over there? No. Do I know the people over there? No. Do I know if I'll fall off the earth? No. Just go. Right? And, I mean, imagine this, right? So, because Abraham's father was still alive at this time. Imagine his father coming to him and saying, okay, son, so where are you going? It's like, yeah, I'm going west. Really? Yes. Are you coming back? Probably not. What are you going to do there? I don't know. Would there be food for the livestock? I'm going west. It really sounds kind of foolish, right? Like not planned. You don't have any plan and you're just going to go. Right? So I want you to note that uncertainty in what God is asking him to do. Go. Sure, God tell, tells him that. I'll give you a land and I'll make a great nation out of you. And I'll bless you, right? And I'll bless the people that bless you and dishonor them that curse you. And through you, I will bless the whole earth. But again, he's 75. He has no kid. He has the comfort of his family. And God is saying, go. Just leave everybody. You probably won't see them again. Right? But go. Right? So, implied in there is this act of faith where Abraham first has to move. Right? First has to step out. And then God meets him. Right? But what I want you to see, though, is as Abraham moves out, every day, every month after that, is trust in God is being built, right? Because God is providing somehow. God is leading him somehow. He's gotten to a place to set down his tent somehow. He's getting by. Day after day, he's getting to trust God, right? Because now he really doesn't know where he's going, right? There's no map of the world, right? Just go out west and I'll show you when you get there, right? Uh, One of the things that sort of jumps out at me is When I came to this country, right, I knew I was going to America, land of opportunities, I'm going to school, all of that. At least there's a map. I have like a cousin there. Like Abraham is going somewhere where there is no map. And quite often in our lives, what you realize is when you move as God leads you, it's only in hindsight that you see a map. That you get to see that, oh, this is why God put me here, or this is why I had to go through that. And sometimes maybe you don't see the map, right? But usually only in hindsight do you begin to see certain things. And so the question then is, what is God tugging at your heart to do, right, or not to do? What is he telling you to give up, right? And no matter what that is, I don't want you to just throw that aside. It's okay to wrestle with those things. 
it's okay to make mistakes. We're all going to, I mean, we've all made mistakes. We're going to make many more, right? Um, and what I want to also show is that even in the mistakes we make, God is so skillful in using all of that to grow our trust in him, right? So let's look at Abraham. Two separate times. And this is Abraham that talks with God, right? Friend of God. Two separate times. Abraham actually gives up the dignity of his wife to save his skin. Right? So I'm imagining it goes to she's like, Sarah, we're going to Egypt. There's a lot to do in Egypt. You know, we're in farming here. There's a lot to get there. When we get to Egypt, though, because you're so good looking, you know, so just in case Pharaoh wants you, it's okay for him to have you. As long as you save my life. So just tell Pharaoh, I'm your sister. Right? Now, he does that twice. He does that with Pharaoh. God comes in, saves him. Does that later on with Abimelech. The same exact thing. For the same exact purpose. I just want to save my life. It's okay that you get used, but I want to save my life, Sarah. That's why. Right? So two times Abraham does that. Right? And then we also know about Hagar, right? And him and Sarah, after 10 years, probably been weary, trying to sort of help God fulfill that promise, right? And, but what I want you to see is, as much as this old patriarch, right, that really has a history, a relationship with God, that God has spoken to directly, he's making these mistakes, right? You would think God will come down and, you know, fire and hailstorm and say, why would you do that, right? But no. God comes to save the day. Actually, we don't actually see in Scripture God actually rebuking Abraham for Sarah, right? But we know it's wrong. Clearly, it's wrong, right? But that's what I want you to see, though. I want you to see the unyielding love of your father for you, right? So that no matter what mistakes you make, even as you make those mistakes, as you make those wrong turns, because he is skillfully making all of that work together for your good, Right? Your faith in him is growing, right? There is that trust you're growing in him, even if you don't know that consciously while you're going through it. But as Abraham is making these mistakes and God is coming to save him, right? God is coming to his rescue. His trust in God is growing, right? The faith is growing. In Genesis 13, Abraham practically allows Lot to make the first choice of where they would settle, right? And so what you sense from here is Abraham is entrusting his livelihood into God's hand, right? Because Lot can choose the best of places, and Abraham is quite okay to choose whatever is left. Again, you see this friendship between them building, right? In Genesis 18 and 19, two separate occasions, right? One of them, God is talking to Abraham, telling him of his promises, changing his name and the name of Sarah, and how he would make them a great nation. And Abraham just laughs. When God says, oh, I'll make of you a great nation and give you a son. And he laughs. Right. And you could see that doubt there. Right. Sarah does the same thing to a chapter later or so, or maybe a chapter before when the three men right, came and they told Sarah that in a year from now, you will have a child. And she laughs. What I want you to see there that it's okay to sometimes have doubt and to wrestle with that doubt before God. Right? But, but the goal is that as you wrestle with the doubt, it's increasing your faith in God. Right? This, again, this is Abraham. He's spoken to God directly. Right? And he's expressing doubt here. Understandably so. Right? And so it's okay when things don't make sense to still go back to God. To talk to God about it. To sit with God about it. Right? And let God 
help you understand that. In Genesis 21, Sarah, not liking what Ishmael is doing or making fun of Isaac, she basically tells Abraham, send him away. Again, very tough decision. Like, I'm just going to send my child away with nothing, right? And you see God coming to Abraham saying, follow through on that. I will take care of Ishmael, right? But follow through on that. Now, maybe this is a precursor to what would happen in Genesis 22, right? He's letting one son go, Ishmael. And in Genesis 22, he's going to lay down Isaac, right? Of course, in Genesis 21, it says that Abraham was not pleased with the idea to let Ishmael go, right? But eventually he did. And again, you see trust being built between him and God because he's essentially handing over Ishmael to God. Like, okay, because the next day he says that he gives them a skin of water. And I think he gives them food or something like that. And he basically sends them away. And that's it, right? So what we've walked through right now is to just see how God is using the events of your life, right? And you might not know how this is going on, but how he can skillfully use this to, to, to how would I put it, to, to form intimacy between you and himself, to build trust through the suffering, the affliction, the disappointment, the hurt. And a lot of it, quite frankly, we can't even explain or understand, right? But through all of it, if we stay with him, if we allow him, he has a way of making all of that deepen trust between himself and you. And so let me quickly just read this quote. I'm just going to read pieces of it on how assurance grows, right? How our assurance in God grows. So assurance grows by repeated conflict by our repeated experimental proof of the Lord's power and goodness to save when we have been brought very low and helped, sorely wounded and healed, cast down and raised again when we have given up all hope and have suddenly been snatched from danger and placed in safety. See, when these things have been repeated to us over and over again, right, then we begin to learn to trust in God against and beyond all appearances, right? And, and so when you look at Abraham at every major crossroad of his life, it wasn't that Abraham just suddenly summoned the willpower and said, I'm going to do the right thing. No, it's that who he was becoming through the process of his life, right? Through the mundane things, the ups and downs, who he was becoming was the person that showed up in those critical moments. You see, the general human failing, at least in my life, um, is that I want to be the type of person that makes the right decision, right? At those critical moments, I want to make the right decision. Right? But the truth is, I don't really want the life that leads to me making the right decision. I'm like, no. <laughs> I generally don't want that disciplined life, right? So when I look at Peter, I'll look at Christine and they're playing. I'm like, yeah, that, that looks nice. Josh playing. I'm like, shoot, I want to be like them. But do I want to sit down and for hours learn how to play the chords and the kid? Like, no, mm -mm. I just want to be like them. Right. I just want to suddenly be like them. Right. And um, that's kind of like how we do this Christian life. Right. We want to be like Christ. We wear those things. Right. What would Jesus say or what would Jesus do? Right? But we really don't want the type of life that leads to that. 
right? The, this type of life where God takes you through so much that you get to the point of possessing nothing, right? You get to the point of actually leaving everything before God, right? So we come back to Abraham, right? In Genesis 22, God is asking him, placing this ultimate demand on his life and saying, lay down Isaac, right? So the question is, will Abraham lay down Isaac and his dreams and his goals? And remember, it's over a hundred years. He waited 25 years for Isaac. Would he now lay down Isaac? Right? Would he basically give up his will? Right? Or would he put his own dreams and goals above the father? Right? So the crux of the matter in this passage is not Isaac's impending death. Not at all. The real issue is will Abraham and his descendants, would they become more attached to the blessings of God? Right? Or the covenant God had with them. Would they become more attached to that than to God? That's the real issue in this passage, right? That's the real crux of the matter. Will I choose God? Or would I choose my own goals, my own dreams, my own ambition and all of that? Right? And so with Abraham, at the very least, he steps out the next morning, right? To start this journey. Right? So even though he probably might not have known exactly how this will end, right? He still steps out. He would at least start this journey. That I'm not sure how this will end, but if you are leading me, God, I will step out. Now, maybe this came from, the, the, maybe he, he, he had the strength to do this because of his prior experience. When God told him in Genesis 12, leave your family, leave your comfort, go out west to a land I will show you. Again, he didn't know where he was going, but at least he would start the journey, right? So we see that from Abraham. At every other point, though, when God spoke to Abraham, Right? And God asked him to do something, even if it's something traumatic. God always had a reward for Abraham. Like, leave your family, go out west, I will bless you, give you a land, make a great nation out of you. There was always some kind of reward to it. But here, in Genesis 22, there was nothing. It was just, go sacrifice Isaac. Right? So, in a way, Abraham had no reward he had no skin in the game, so to say, in terms of what's in it for me, right? What am I going to get? It was just go, sacrifice Isaac. And God was specific. Your son, the only son whom you love. Like, don't go look for Ishmael and try to sacrifice Ishmael. Like, no, Isaac, that's the one I want you to sacrifice, right? Um, and so the question is, will Abraham, has Abraham been serving God for personal gain, right? For what he can get or just for the love of Abraham? Oh, just for the love of God, sorry. And that's the same question to us. Why are we serving God? How do I deal with uncertainty? When things don't go my way, what is my usual response to that? Right? Am I willing to let go of my dreams, my goals, the things I've always looked to, right? For the sake of God's will and his purpose. And, and we should expect God to take us through things like this because it refines our faith. We, we see that in James 1, 2 to 4. I'm not saying God will ask you to sacrifice your child. No, not at all. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm just saying there are things God might ask of you to lay down before him, right? Because he has a way of purifying our faith, of strengthening us, right? Um, 
in verse 4, it says, on the third day, Abraham looked and saw where they were going. And for me, what I see there is a conscious commitment from Abraham. Because this was no knee-jerk reaction of sacrifice Isaac, Isaac, come here, I'll kill you, we're done. Before I can think about it. He had three days of thinking, like, am I actually going to do this? Three days of, I can only imagine what he was thinking as he journeyed towards Moriah, right? And so it would seem that God wants this conscious commitment from us, right? Where you know exactly what you're doing, right? And you keep going and you see all the dangers, you see all the uncertainties, but you keep going, right? And for Abraham, his years of interaction with God, right? Had developed trust enough in him that at least he would take a couple steps and see what God would do with that, right? And the question is, why is God doing this? Why would God even ask Abraham, sacrifice your son? Why? Like, you know what Abraham is going to do, God, you are sovereign, right? So why ask him to do that? And that's the same question we could ask of ourselves in different situations. Why is God asking me to do this? Or why am I going through this season of affliction or pain or laying setting things down? Right? And just like how we know God commands us to pray, to interact with him, right? But he knows what you're going to say, right? And so the question is, why am I praying? Um, on one hand, it does please God that you're able to come to him, right? Uh, because it also gives him an opportunity to speak into that area of our lives. Right. Um, in this particular passage, we could look at the experience and say, maybe the point of this is to actually build more faith in Abraham. Right. Abraham himself might not have known that I could actually give up my son. Right. For God. So maybe that's one option. Second option is I want you to imagine if you were Isaac. Right. So you, you get to the top <laughs> and Abraham says, Isaac, it's like, yes, I want you to close your eyes. It's like, why? <laughs> put, your, put your hands behind your back, <laughs> close your eyes, put your feet together <laughs> and you feel someone tying something around your legs. I don't know exactly how it happened. I'm just kidding. But think about Isaac, how he had to lay himself down there on that altar. Right. And he sees the dedication of a father he's come to love about to kill him. And then he hears a voice from God saying, no, do not touch him. Now go through that experience. Sure, it can be traumatic. But also it could actually build faith in Isaac. Like It could truly strengthen his faith when he sees this interaction between his father here on earth and this father in heaven. And he sees all the proclamations coming from that. And he actually realizes that God actually never meant that he should be sacrificed from the beginning. Right? We could infer that from what... God would say after that. And then lastly, maybe God did all of this, and I'm sure this is one of the reasons, to actually point to Christ, right? We, we dare not miss these allusions to Christ. Isaac carrying the wood, going up the mountain to Moriah, right? Jesus carrying his cross up to Golgotha. Isaac seemingly didn't struggle, right? Seems like he didn't struggle. Jesus being sacrificed without struggling, not even uttering a word of his defense to himself, like for himself, sorry. Right? And, and so, in laying down Isaac, Abraham was just not laying down his son, he was laying down the promises. 
He was laying down all the benefits, all what he had waited for, for 25 years. He was laying all of that down. So essentially, he had come to this place of possessing nothing. And this is what I mean by that. What I mean is that he had become a man that would willingly give up what he cannot keep, what he cannot secure. He, he had become that man that would give it up to gain what he could not lose which is God. So he had become this type of person that would give up on one hand what he could not keep. In reali real realistically, he couldn't really keep anything, right? We think we're in control, but we're really not in control. So he's given up all of that to actually gain the one thing he could never lose, God, to gain more of that intimacy, right? And so in a way, Abraham's treasure is now God, right? And in God being his treasure, even though it seems like he was laying down the Lord and laying down the promises and laying down everything, but truly, in choosing God, he now has everything he laid down. He has all of that legitimately, purely in God. And that's sort of like the trick question, right? You hear on one hand scripture that says, if anyone wants to become my disciple, you must first deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. In a sense, you're giving up everything, right? What Jesus says in Luke 14, I think, verse 33, that for you to be my disciple, you have to renounce everything, right? But then on the other hand, he says, I am your shepherd. I will take care of you. If I take care of the birds that fly here and there, don't worry about it. I'll take care of you. So in real realistically, you're actually not giving up anything, even though you are in a sense, right? You have everything in God. When you choose him, right? So this is the point Abraham had gotten to. But you see, there was someone else that gave up so much more than Abraham or Isaac, right? Someone else that would come to die for our sins. One who had no sin, but for our sakes, right, would give up everything, right? And he would do all of that to show his love for us, right? So when we look at the... Uh, uh, the point where God told Abraham, sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering. A burnt offering is basically uh, an offering where everything is destroyed completely, except for the height of the animal. So you don't take any piece for the priest or anything. Everything is just consumed. Right? And the point of the burnt offering is to make atonement between God and man. Exactly what Christ came to do for us. Right? That's exactly what he came to do for us. So look at Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Exchanging his immortality for mortality. He would come here to this earth, live the life we should live, and then die the death we should die. Right? And he would do all of this in Isaiah 53, verse 10. It talks about how the Father, it was the Father's will. And that word will actually carries this sense of pleasure. It was the Father's pleasure to crush him for our sakes. Right? And the very next verse, verse 11, Isaiah 53, 11, it says the son was satisfied with his mission. And I would assume he was satisfied because he could see what his mission would procure, our salvations. Right? So this, this is the love of God for you that would never give up on you. No matter where you've been, no matter how life has gone. Right? Even when he's asking you, to become the type of person that will lay down everything for him. He won't give up on you. He will always, always be there to help, to strengthen, to guide. 
And so in Genesis 22, verse 12, um, let me read a scripture and then I want to play with that scripture a bit. Uh, the angel speaking here says, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know, now I know that you fear God, seeing that you withheld, that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Right? Now, since God offered his son for us, right? Let me play a little bit with that scripture and read something to you, right? So I could now say this to God, or we could say this to God. Like, now I know, now I know that since you did not spare your son, since you, God, did not spare your son, your only begotten son, whom you love dearly, because you did not spare him for my sake, you sacrificed him for my sake, now I know that you love me, right? Now I know that you will actually give me everything that I need graciously with him, with Christ. Now I know that because you did not spare your son, right, the one who is holy, right, the one who is perfect, you didn't spare him for me, right? Me, who complete chief of sinners, like Paul will point to, right? And that's all of us actually, right? Because you did not spare him, but you sacrificed him for me. Now I know that you love me. And I want that to give you this strength. I want that to give you this hope to, to make you settled in him. And I know times are, have been hard for some of us. I'm sure all of us have been through that. Maybe we're still going through that. Where, where there are seasons you just can't understand what's going on. And sometimes it seems like God is no longer my father, right? And it seems like you're just sort of left out there hanging, just sort of drifting. Right? If we could always go back here, sure, it doesn't make sense in that moment. But if we could always go back here to remember that if he sacrificed his son for us, then he definitely loves us, definitely loves us. And so, again, we come back to this point of the seeming foolishness of God, the cross, is unexplored wisdom, right? The seeming foolishness of God is unexplored wisdom. What God is calling you to, what God is tugging at your heart, and sometimes it's just very small things. I'm not necessarily talking about some huge thing, right? Follow through on that. And I know it's hard. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to go off track. And the question that comes to me here is, how do I become, I want to go back to this question, how do I become the good tree that bears good fruit? And how do I actually become Christ-like? We looked at Abraham, looked at his life, looked at the ups and downs. We understand that God comes to us disguised, right, in the events of our life. Like in the mundane events, God is right there, right, disguised. So we know that is there. Right, God is going to do his part. The question is, is there anything I can do on my side right, to make me so open to God so that I do not miss this time so I'm slowly becoming transformed into Christ-likeness? Right? The truth is, all of us are undergoing a transformation. Whether you're a terrorist or you're the most holy person, we are all undergoing a transformation. Right? Bit by bit, we are either becoming immortal horrors, 
we are becoming transformed into Christ-likeness. Whether or not you are active in that process or not. For example, if you look back in life, you sometimes you'll be able to see how you are slowly becoming maybe impatient or maybe more loving or just maybe more angry and more irritated, right? Or maybe more in self-control. It's always happening. Whether you are active in it, whether you're not active, it's always happening. You are becoming a type of person, right? The question is who, what am I becoming, right? And so since Jesus is our model, I just want to really look at his life, right? And look at how he lived. In John chapter 5, verse 19, I'm going to paraphrase. Uh, Jesus basically says, the son can do nothing of his own accord, right? Only what he sees his father doing is what the son can do, right? What I want you to catch there is that dependence on God. Like he, he has this posture of being so dependent on God. In Hebrews 5, Right, I think maybe from verse 6 or 7, he talks about how Jesus, in his days on this earth, right, offered prayers and supplication right, with loud tears and cries to the one who could save him. And he was heard because of his reverence. Right? Again, you're seeing this dependence, this posture of humility, because supplication is actually making a request uh, uh, from this position of just nothingness, this position of I have no strength, help me. Right? That's the idea behind supplication, this humility of I can't do this by myself. I need help. Now, this is Jesus, right? The very form of God, right? The one who did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, right? But he poured himself out, being fashioned in the likeness of men, right? Formed in, found in human form, right? Being a servant. And he became obedient as Isaac was obedient, Jesus was obedient, right? But Jesus was obedient to death, death on the cross, a gruesome death, right? So again, he's our model. I just want to look at some scriptures from his life. How do we become like Jesus? How do we actually become the good tree that bears good fruit naturally? So let me read some scriptures real quick. Luke chapter 5, verse 16. But he, Jesus, would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. Luke 6, verse 12 to 13. In these days, excuse me, in these days, which I believe Nick had expounded upon that, this was days of a lot of um, opposition towards Christ, right? And he was about to pick his apostles and sort of set a new order, right? So in these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. Right? And when they came, he called his disciples, and from them he chose twelve, which he named apostles. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. And the prelude to this like, is that Jesus had been doing so much. He went to the synagogue, did some healings, went to Peter's mother-in-law's house. She was sick. He healed her. The Bible says the whole town gathered around there. Now, the whole town, maybe a couple hundred people, maybe more. And he was healing people, ministering to them. And then verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. When it says desolate place, just, a, just look at it as a quiet place, right? For me and you in today's world. Just a, a quiet place, a place where you can concentrate. Mark fourteen thirteen. When Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been beheaded, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. 
Mark 6, 31 to 32. Because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. This is Jesus and his disciples. Right? Jesus said to his disciples, come with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. John seven ten, And after his brothers had gone up to the feast in Jerusalem, then Jesus also went up, not publicly, but privately. Now, the reason I read that scripture is uh, walking from Galilee to Jerusalem would have taken him a couple of days, right? So he probably had a couple of days to himself. Again, that solitary sense, that solitude, that just being able to be with God. So, so what I want to pick on is what some people call spiritual disciplines, spiritual exercises, habits of grace. You all know them. There's nothing mysterious about them. Um, when I say spiritual disciplines, I just mean anything you do that opens you up to God. Anything. Right. So, for example, you're here in church. This is a spiritual discipline. Right. Meeting with community of believers. This is a spiritual discipline. Anything you can do that would open your heart to God. Right. Is what I'm terming a spiritual discipline. Now, real quick. Spiritual disciplines are not some stripes of maturity in God. Right. They don't get you any cool points with God. All right. They're not to be legalistic. It's not like, yeah, I do this. You don't do that. I'm better. No. Right. It's not like, oh, I have to pray every morning. And if I don't pray every morning, then my day will go bad. You're probably trusting more in that act of prayer than in God. Right? So, yes, it's good to pray and it's good to have time with God. But we don't see them as this legalistic laws that we have to do. No. Right. So that's one hand. On the other hand, I do want us to take them seriously. Right. Because they are a way for us to open ourselves to God. Um, in every other area of life, we generally plan. You're going to college, you plan. You know, you want to get married, you have some plans. You know, whatever it is you want to do, you want to buy a house, you want to get a job, you just don't sit in your house. You actually do something, right? You plan, right? Let's take the same sort of approach with our work with God, right? Plan for those times when you can be with God. You know, you know yourself, you know whether you're the type of person that before you can actually concentrate, you need to rest a bit. Plan for that. Just, you know, again, it doesn't have to be, oh, 7 a.m., I have to do this. And maybe it has to be like that, right? All I'm just saying is let's take it more seriously and actually plan for it, right? And I'm going to talk to some of them. Um, and, and the reason I'm talking about this is because a discipline Right? It's something we can do in our strength that will get us to a place right, where we can now do what we could not naturally do. Let me explain. I was talking about Peter and Christine or Josh playing musical instruments. Right, The discipline for me, if I want to be like them, if I want to do what they are doing now, what I cannot by myself do, is I have to go get a teacher. Right, and Maybe for two hours every day, it's like, Tolu, do your hands like this. Do this. Like, keep doing this a thousand times. <laughs> right? I have to start doing things that normally when you see me, you're like, yeah, you got a problem. Why are you doing this? <laughs> and you think that totally you have a problem, right? But, but this is what I have to do, right, T to become like them. Right? That's what a discipline is. It opens you up to God, and then God does the change in you, right? 
like I said, they're not a means of righteousness. I do want us to take them seriously. We all know what they are. Prayer. Right? Time with God. We all do that. Right? Well, we should be doing that. Um, community. Coming to church. This is one of it. Um, I'm not a good example of this. Because <laughs> I don't come to church early enough. But it would be great if we would come to church with a heart that is prepared to hear from God. Right? And actually know that God is here to speak to you. That God is here to reach out to you. To meet you where you are. He might not answer the question you have. But just trust in whatever he's saying. Right? Follow that light is shining on your path. And just trust that somehow when you look back in life, there will be a plan. There will be a map. Right? Let me quickly talk about three disciplines that maybe are not as common. But I'm sure you're all familiar with them. But I just want to talk to them. Talk about them real quick. One is fasting. Right? Fasting retrains us away from our dependence on our desires, right? What fasting does for us is that it has this function of freeing us from having what we want, right? It has this, this ability for us to say, so what? My desires are not fulfilled. I'm fine. I'll be okay. Sure, I want that thing, but it's okay. I'll get by. And the more we do that, the more we, for example, fast and on the positive side, we feast on God. We see God as our dependence. When I don't get that promotion, for example, right? I don't blow off a gasket. Right? Because I know that my identity is in God. When I don't get, when Golden State doesn't win, does an NBA title? Because they're not going to win. <laughs> SNL, they're not going to win. Right? I don't want you to get angry. <laughs> But seriously, when I don't get what I want, can I be okay with that? It doesn't mean I still don't long for it or pray for it, but can I be in a place where it's okay? If I don't get that, that's fine. Life will move on. Can I see more of the blessings of God in my life? That's what fasting does. It has this ability to retrain us away from depending on our desires. Quite frankly, when we fast, Pay attention to what drives you, right? For me, when I pay attention to those things, there's usually areas in which I need God, right? How do we do this? Start small. Pick a day. Miss one meal. Miss two meals. Whatever it is, right? But, but have a consistency to it. Do it once a month. Once a quarter. If that, whatever works for you. Just have a consistency. Once a week. Whatever it is. But have a consistency to it, a way of just going before God, right? And saying, God, I'm here. It doesn't mean you would hear anything. It doesn't mean he would say anything. But that process of training yourself to look away from your desires and to look to God will be an immense benefit in those critical moments when you have to make the right decision. So that's faster. Solitude and silence. A significant amount of our sins, at least for me, my sin patterns, has to do with my environment and the societal goals or controls around me. Right? Let me give you an example. Um, the aggressiveness that is so typical in this valley right, about your career and your goals and all of that, for me, usually, it, it turns me into this horror. Or if I don't get what I want... What comes out of me is usually not good. 
whether it's with a client and you guys know my first year at Apple was crazy. A lot of you guys know, like I needed prayer constantly because it, it, it was driving me crazy. Right. And sometimes even in Christian circles, when it comes to work and ambition, what we do is we mask greed as ambition. And then we talk about, oh, you know, God has given me these gifts and I should be excellent with it and all of that, which is true. You should be a great steward of that. What I'm saying is, as much as you are a steward of that, would you also be a steward of growing in the fruits of the spirit? Right? Would you also take that seriously as you have your five, ten year plan? Right. And you can't really have a five, ten year plan with growing in spirituality. Not really. But I'm just saying, would you also take that seriously and do something to that end? Right. So solitude and silence, staying away, stepping out of the environment for lengthy periods of time has this ability to sort of take us out of the circuits of our sins. So sometimes when I go for walks or hikes or maybe I take a day off. Right. And I just turn everything off my phone, everything. Right? It takes me a while to, first of all, be quiet internally because I always want to pick up my phone. I always want to do something. Oh, this person is calling me. Maybe that person called me after a while when I've settled down. Then I can begin to reflect on the pattern of my life and I can see how I'm living my days. And I can see how I am usually so given to certain sin patterns in my life. You see, if I don't step out of that environment, I don't see it. I just keep going, like everybody's going and running the rat race. Like sometimes I think to myself, I'm like, yeah, Tulu, you're building your 401k and all of that, which you should do. I'm like, what if you die tomorrow? <laughs> right? I'm like, what? you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, give to the Sehora clinic, this and that. I'm like, yeah, Tulu, you really might die tomorrow. Like maybe you should give. <laughs> right? It, because it just has a way. When I step out of it and see that this life here, even if we live to 120 years, right? It's a little piece of eternity. A very small, minute piece. Yet I run myself into the ground trying to make a way, right? I, I would trust God for eternal salvation, right? I would trust God for eternity, some eternity I can't see. But I can't trust God for work, for getting a promotion or not getting a promotion. Right, you see the disparity there, right? Lastly, so again, how do you do solitude and silence? Go on a hike, take a day off. There's some retreat houses you could go to. Just go there, turn off your phone, stay off of social media for a while. Just do little simple things, start small. With all these things, always start small. Don't be so ambitious and go into solitude and silence for three days, no. Just start small, something small, an hour. Saturday mornings, I'm going to turn off my phone. And I'm just going to be with God, right? Oh, just for now, I'm just going to turn off everything. I'm going to go for a walk and come back. Something small, right? Uh, lastly, scripture memorization. The primary freedom we have, excuse me, uh, whether we are Christians or not, one of the primary freedoms we enjoy is the choice of where we will place our minds. What would I fix my mind on is one of the primary freedom we all enjoy as just human beings, Right? And so that freedom is actually enhanced by the spiritual disciplines, fasting, solitude, and silence. Scripture memorization, though, has this ability to reorient what you would normally fix your mind on to the Word of God. 
right? That's what scripture memorization does for you, and then you can meditate on it, right? So, and there really is no greater disciplinary verse in scripture apart from Joshua 1.8, right? This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, right? So that you may be careful to do all that is in it, all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you would have good success. Another scripture would be Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man that does not stand in the way of sinners, right? Sit in the seat of mockers, you know, uh, that does not take the counsel of the ungodly or wicked or something like that, right? And in his law, he meditates day and night. Then he shall become like a tree that is planted by the rivers of life, Right? So, how do you do this? Pick a passage. Again, starts more. Psalm 23. We usually all know that. But I don't want you to pick a verse, though. Pick a passage. For just context. It doesn't have to be a whole chapter. But pick some verses just for context. Right? Memorize that. Walk on that. Sit with that. A month, three months, six months, a year. Whatever. But pick something and sit with it. And you'll be surprised by how much you will get from it. Right. For example, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There was a time I sat with that for a while. And what I realized is I actually don't believe that. Because if I did, I actually would not worry. At least I would not be as worried <laughs> as I was in that season. If I actually believed that the Lord is my shepherd, the same way you believe if you sit on this chair, you won't fall down. You don't even think about it. You just sit. Right? It's the same thing. The same way how, you know, when you're hungry, you get food and you eat. You don't think, oh, would the food fill me or not? You just eat and you're fine. Right? You don't even think. If I could trust God that way, like imagine how much peace I would have. Imagine how much settledness there would be in life. If I could just truly trust that the Lord is my shepherd. Right Now, if I say Celestine, she looks up. She's the only one. Nobody else really looks up. She knows because there's this familiarity with the name, this repetition with the name over time. Right? If she was named something else at birth, she would also be familiar with that name. Maybe Eve or something, right? She would be familiar with that. It's the same thing. There has to be this repetition, this consistency, so to say. For us to get the truth of God in us. Right? And that's why we come to church often, right? That's why we meet in small groups. That's why we pray often. Right? And that's what I'm asking we should do with this discipline. So pick anyone. Start small. Pick one thing. Pick two things. Whatever it is. Have some rhythm though to life. Have some rhythm that helps you step out of yourself and look at what's going on. Amen. Amen. Sorry, that was long. Whew. I didn't think it would be that long. But um, let's pray. Let's say a quick prayer and then Nick will come up. Father, thank you so much for your mercy, for your grace. We are praying for God's strength because we know we cannot do this by ourselves. What we are praying for is your grace. Because we know we are going to make mistakes, we are going to fall short. 
what we're praying for is that we will always be reminded of your love for us. That we will always hold on to that love. That we will be settled in your love, God. That no matter what is happening around us, no matter what is going on, we would always be focused on you. Please help us, God. Even as we take on some of these disciplines, help us, God. Meet us even as we engage in this. Strengthen us. Guide us. Help us truly open our hearts to you and truly receive from you. In Jesus' name. Amen.